You're listening to Lightbulb by Model United Nations, where we discuss the issues that lie beyond our classrooms. This podcast is brought to you by Hudson County Community College. With us today, we have Professor Robert Alvarez. Professor Alvarez has earned most of his experience as a professional investor on Wall Street, working with late-stage venture capital firms and in hedge funds. His expertise lies in healthcare investing, especially in the equity of micro and small capitalization firms. He has also earned his Chartered Financial Analyst designation, the most difficult of the financial credentials. For his research interests, Professor Alvarez focuses on behavioral economics, which concerns psychological insights into human behavior in the market. Currently, Professor Alvarez teaches microeconomics and macroeconomics, both honors and regular sections. Before that, he used to teach U.S. History 1 and 2. Outside of Hudson County Community College, he teaches a variety of finance and economics courses, including healthcare finance. Thank you for being here, Professor. Thank you for having me. It's a pleasure. Professor, I wanted to base our discussion today on systematic financial structures and their significance in the world. An expanding system that almost everyone in the world seems to rely on right now is capitalism. So before we dive deeper into the causes and effects of it, what is capitalism? I mean, I think, you know, capitalism becomes one of these sort of catch-all phrases that has, you know, in different historical periods, different more specific meanings. When I say capitalism today, I think we're just broadly talking about the, uh, you know, the free market system, for lack of a better word. Um, the idea that, for the most part, we allow uh, individuals, be they persons, uh, firms, industries, to decide what they make and how much, of it, what, uh, how much of it they make, what they charge for it, what you buy, what you don't buy, and things like that. It's a sort of bottoms-up type system, right, as opposed to a top-down controlled economy that we would have seen in, you know, for example, the Soviet Union or China after World War II and things like that. You know, it gets too much tied into maybe this Marxian view of the world of the capital owners versus the labor and stuff like that. And so one of the first things I always uh, suggest to my students is when you think about it, capital in the beginning is just surplus labor, right? Mm. Imagine we're all on an island somewhere or something like that, and we sort of start recreating an economy, right? Mm. As soon as one person decides to take some of their consumption during this period and hold it off, right, till next period, right? Mm. I could have consumed 10 bushels of whatever it is, and instead I decided to make eight. Mm. They've essentially just created capital, right? Mm. And so once you see that, once you see that value actually flows, right, over time between labor and capital, it's not that there are these diametrically opposed elements, right? We all, in different moments of our days, our lives, and everything else, kind of kind of play in both sides. Mm. So it's, it's it <clears throat> so that has to do more with individual liberty, I imagine. I think that most people would. Uh, I'll probably get into some trouble here, but I think most people would associate the capitalist system with more individual liberty. Mm. You're deciding what to do, as opposed to being told what to do, right? So I want to get into how 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 did it begin? Why did it begin? Well, I mean, I think it doesn't, so if you think about modern economics, you know, we always look at Adam Smith and the Wealth of Nations in 1776. Um, one of the things I love about economics, and I, and I tell this to, my, to students, um, is that it happens whether you like it or not, right? You know, I, I often have students in either my economics or finance classes who will come in begrudgingly, oh, I'm getting stuck taking this, I need to do it for my, for my major requirement, whatever it is. And I don't like this. I'm not interested in it. I don't care about money. I don't care about numbers, whatever. And one of the things I always tell them is that you might not be interested in economics. You might not be interested in finance. But economics and finance are interested in you, mm. right? You, will sp- you could put your head in the sand and ignore these issues, but you'll spend the rest of your life, for example, being taken advantage of, right? Mm. Paying too much for things and sort of that type of stuff. So 
the study of economics is a lot more recent, right, in our sense of the capitalist system, right, than the human forces that were leading to its development early on. So when I used to teach history classes, kind of as a, as a little bit of a side thing, uh, you know, one of the things we talked about was when the Spanish first colonized the Western Hemisphere and they extracted just tremendous amounts of silver and gold and everything else. And as I, off the top of my head, if I remember correctly, in the first hundred years of Spanish colonies in the Western Hemisphere, the amount of silver that they exported back to Western, back to Europe at that point, not just Western Europe, tripled the amount of silver on the continent, right? Mm -hmm. What that led to was, was an immense inflation, right? Mm -hmm. Now, at the time, most people didn't know what inflation was, right? They didn't understand macroeconomics. The word economics, right, wasn't a discipline, right? Later on, it was part of philosophy and then broke on its own. But it happens regardless if you sort of pay attention to it or not. We instinctively try to make ourselves better, right? We instinctively try to sort of maximize whatever it is we're passionate about. And in doing so, we should, if we're being rational, talk about marginal benefit and marginal cost, do a little bit more of this if the extra benefit is better than the extra cost and so forth. So, you know, one of the things, if you go on to, let's say, graduate school in economics, the math gets really complicated, right? You know, you got to take a lot of it and everything else. But the math doesn't make economics work. Humans make economics work. The complicated math is necessary to describe what's happening. It happens whether you sort of know how to describe it or not, right? And that was what really drew, one of the things that drew, drew me to it as an undergraduate. Regardless of uh, whether or not I know how to do differential calculus, right, I'm still using the things calculus is describing and deciding what I'm doing every day, right? Mm -hmm. The guy selling hot dogs on the corner doesn't go home and drive, draw supply and demand curves and everything else. But we use all these other methodologies to describe what it is that he does every day and stuff mm -hmm. like that. So the early question about how it develops, right, if we go back to four or five hundred years ago or, or earlier, there's this idea of mercantilism, mm -hmm. right? That was what was sort of fueling the quest for colonies, right? Mm -hmm. This very, uh, really, frankly, outdated, simplistic, and really incorrect view that, you know, the, the key to national wealth is, you know, we import the raw materials, we make something really good with them, and then we sort of, you know, we have this positive balance of trade. I would say it's outdated, although it seems to be in the midst of being endorsed by the current administration, which is a real, real tragedy. You know, uh, regardless of what one's politics are, if you, took, if you did a survey of 1,000 professional economists, finance people, academics, industry, what have you, one of the things that almost all of them will agree on is that free trade is good. Now, everyone quibbles about this particular, this particular measure or that particular measure. This is not a right versus left issue within academia, right? Mm -hmm. Of those 1,980, right, or something like that, would probably agree on the basic tenets of lower tariffs, more trade, comparative advantage, and so forth. Listen, no one's perfect. Mm -hmm. Even in a relatively free trade environment that we're now, are there individual tariffs? Yeah, of course there are, right? Are there individual uh, uh, restrictions? Yeah, of course there are. But the broad, broad consensus academically and then politically since World War II has been to lower these, lower these barriers to trade, increase trade, increase international specialization and the benefits of comparative advantage. And we're in the midst of thumbing our nose at that, right? And it's a, it's, it's a real problem. We're rich, right? This nation is incredibly wealthy at the aggregate level from a historical perspective. We'll be fine. Won't be as good as we could have been. We'll be fine. But sort of turning back the clock really deprives a lot of other parts of the world that are still trying to catch up, if you will, of the opportunity to do so. 
Can you explain a little more like how we're shifting into mercantilism? Well, I don't think we are, fingers crossed, right? Mm -hmm. but, but the idea, so you hear the president, right? And I'm not trying to pick on the president. Mm -hmm. Well, all right, I am trying to pick on the president. <laughs> um, you hear the president say things like, we've done bad trade deals. Other people are taking advantage of us, right? Worst deals in history. That is nonsense, right? Mm -hmm. It's just nonsense, right? No one forces you to buy something from another country. If we do, if we buy a specific good from another country of our own free will, it's because we think it's a good deal, right? Mm -hmm. If it wasn't a good deal, don't do it, right? One of the, I mean, this is if you talk about the area like public choice economics, right? The idea where government regulators and government institutions can be captured, if you will, in their deliberations by very narrow interest groups. Trade's a primary example, right? Mm -hmm. So I don't have the data in front of me, right? But last week when the president announced the, the intended tariffs on aluminum and steel, mm -hmm. He was talking about, oh, we're going to protect these 200,000 steel jobs, whatever the number is. Mm -hmm. Okay, but we're going to harm these other 600,000, 6 million, sorry, jobs in related industries and things like oh. that. Because overall, the idea of free trade, right, means that overall we're better off, mm -hmm. right? We're getting, as you remember from our class, right, this idea of comparative advantage. We don't have to be absolutely better at something. We have to be relatively better at something than somebody else. Mm -hmm. And everyone everyone has a comparative advantage. You know, the example I use in my class, right, we talk about maybe a surgeon, right, who, uh, who served time in the military. And so maybe because of basic training and stuff like that, he got really, really good at making beds, right? Perfect beds, tight corners, and everything else. And so now that he's at the hospital, maybe he's better at making the beds than the orderly on his ward. Should we have him make the beds? That makes no sense, right? Mm. Hopefully his advantage in surgery far outweighs his advantage in bed making. Mm. Well, otherwise he wastes his time in medical school. So the orderly still should make the beds, right? Even though the surgeon would be better at it, right? The orderly has a absolute disadvantage in both of those services, if you will. Mm. But there's still a role for him to play. Mm. When we look at things like free trade, right, and buying from uh, other countries or other areas of the country, for example, um, where they have an advantage in something. Um, what we're doing is we're maximizing overall economic welfare. Now, are there specific losers from some free trade uh, arrangements? Yeah, there sure are, right? For example, if we suddenly, to, and maybe historically, I don't even know if this is absolutely true, but maybe historically domestic steel producers have done poorly. But so should the rest of us pay more to save those specific jobs? Right? One of the things, I could, you could very easily convince me that, for example, if we institute a new, uh, we reduce tariffs in a given area, right, that, hey, we should, as a political decision, help that affected industry re retrain or transition to something else. That's fine. That's a different argument, right? That's an argument about the, the political realities. The economic realities are that whenever we put in an artificial impediment to what would otherwise be a freely arrived market transaction, i.e., I want to buy this from this producer in this country, whatever, we're going to have inefficiencies. To get, not to get overly technical, we're going to have dead weight loss, right? Whenever we sort of step into a market, right, and move off that natural equilibrium point, we are going to sort of pay a price. Now, politically, sometimes we might choose to pay that price. Minimum wage laws are an example. We've decided we're going to intervene in that market, right, to put a floor below which we're not going to allow people to be paid. That's a political choice, but we have to, one of the things I always stress in our classes is you're free to make those choices, but you're not free to ignore the costs, right? You have to be honest with ourselves. I sometimes say economics and finance, they're like the grumpy dinner party guest, 
everybody else is always talking about oh this wonderful great idea and isn't this just great and like kumbaya let's give everybody a hug and then the econ guy at the end of the table or the finance guy at the end of the table says yeah but how are you going to pay for that or is that really what you intended or something like that so as long as you do it politely hopefully you still get invited to dinner the next week but um but you know we have that reputation i think it's well deserved right it's economics isn't called a dismal science for nothing <laughs> Okay, so you're saying that sort of um, these restrictions that we're putting on and trade and everything, it's yeah. actually more harmful to, to us than, you know, it's more political rhetoric than uh, economically successful. Oh, I think it's, I, I, I think it's incredibly economically unsuccessful. Mm. I don't have the slightest bit of, there's a lot of things in this world I don't know. Mm. I don't have the slightest bit of doubt that the idea that uh, trade restrictions harm us overall. So you don't think that represents the essence of capitalism? No, I think it's an interference with capitalism. Mm. It is quite literally uh, somebody, a political actor, stepping in mm. and stopping the market from doing what the market wants to do. I think that's definitely true. All right. Well, I wanted to um, go to the next question, which is um, last week we had uh, Professor Bishop here who discussed that the lack of ability of individuals to pur pur purchase healthy food is an example of economic decisions made under constraint. We discussed the difference between the market price of a product, which would be focused on profit, versus the cost of creating the product, such as pesticides and painful labor. Capitalism relies heavily on a person's ability to act from a profit-based perspective. Do you think this profit-motivated vision of the world is to blame for the devastating costs of production that Professor Bishop and I discussed about? So how long do we have to go over that question? Because I'm going to go piece <laughs> by piece and disagree with like five you things you just said. You can go on as long as you want. Uh, so I'm going to go literally just, uh, just piece by piece terms, what you just said. Yeah. Right. <laughs> so the first thing, this idea of uh, that this is an example of economic decisions made under constraint. All decisions in the universe are made under conditions of constraint, mm. right? So that's a false dichotomy, if you will. That's what, you know, one of the things we talk about, right, is that uh, in economics, right, economics, if I want to sum up economics in one sentence, is a study of scarcity and the decisions we make under conditions of scarcity. Mm. And, you know, I have, I, I don't have kids, but I have uh, two younger cousins and everything else. And so I just saw them last weekend. And one of the things I always think is a really important moment in a child's life is the first time they realize scarcity exists, Right. You know, everybody knows you take a five-year-old to Toys R Us or something like that, right? And you know, I'll, I'll let me get you something for your birthday. And they pick up something off the shelf. And then you start going down the aisle, right? And then they say, oh, no, I want that, right? And say, so take something off of the, else off the shelf. And you go to put the first thing back, right? And then they freak out. No, I want that. And you're like, well, you have to choose. But I want them. The first time in your life you realize, but I want them, doesn't win the argument, you realize scarcity exists. Everyone has scarcity, right? Every nation, every person. Bill and Melinda Gates, right, started the Bill and Melinda Gates Foundation. They didn't say we're going to solve every problem on the planet, even though at the time he was the first or second, third richest person on the planet, whatever it was that particular year. We have to, we have a theoretically unlimited wants, right? But we always have limited means. Even a nation this wealthy, right? And from a historical perspective, there's never been a nation this large and this wealthy, right? There are smaller nations that have been richer, right? There are larger nations that have been poorer, but this unbelievable combination that we've been able to, that we're still clinging to, is really unique, right? And something to be to be proud of. We have scarcity, right? I mean, you know, you need to look no further than the budget debates in Washington and everything else. If we put money in this, it's taking money away from that. That's a natural thing in the world. So I would first take issue with this idea that there's something wrong because look, now people are being forced to make trade-offs. Life is about making trade-offs, right? My decision to come and sit here with you today meant I wasn't doing something else today, whether no matter how much I wanted to be able to do something. 
So I think so. I think the the, the premise there gets a little bit um, uh, starts us off on a on a slightly tilted foot, right? Uh, but I mean, of course, there's going to be like scarcity and trade offs. But don't you think that once it comes to something as being able to purchase healthy food, which which we sort of um, when we were discussing it, we mentioned how you know it, it every individual deserves healthy food. So do you feel like such a trade off, such scarcity? Uh, shouldn't be um, here, as as you said, in in a nation, uh, you know, the wealthiest nation ever that existed. You have to explain to, to explain to me what you mean by such scarcity shouldn't be here. I mean, I've, there's I no because like so, let me tell you what I mean. There's no shortage of food, right? Mm. This planet produces vastly more calories mm. each year than we would need to feed every single person on the planet. So there is the re hunger. If hunger exists, and it obviously does, right? Especially in other places, but in the U.S. as well, it is not because somehow we can't produce the food, right? So, so that's not the scarce issue. Are there issues? Listen, I grew up pretty poor, right, uh, in Jersey City. Uh, other people grew up poorer, but we certainly weren't wealthy by any stretch of the imagination. And I've lived in over my life, sometimes poorer neighborhoods. Is there a difference in the shopping? Uh, what's available in certain neighborhoods? Absolutely, right. And is that a huge problem? That is, that is absolutely true, right? But um, we have to sort of think about how much of that is because of some institutional impediment, mm. and I'm open to it being true, mm. and how much of it is because of choices people make. And if it's because of choices people make, what is our affirmative responsibility to stop them, right? Mm. It's one of the things that it comes down to to a certain degree, right? My mother smoked her entire life, right? Despite me yelling at her for the better part of 30 years about it, right? Just the government made her stop? Clearly, it was an unhealthy choice, right? I perpetually need to lose 20 pounds, right? Even though I told you not to ask me about that on the, uh, on the podcast, right? Uh, I know I need to lose 20 pounds, right? I even bought, a, I bought an elliptical machine, so I'm working on it and everything else, right? Right. Despite that, when I got home from teaching my evening class last night, that I uh, eat more than I should have when I got home, I did it. <laughs> right. So I'm not trying to make sure of this because I actually do think it's a real issue. Right. Part of it's education. Part of it is access. Part of it is, um, I think, part of it is even things as simple as zoning. Right. So let me give you an example of what I mean. Um, there are no wall unless there maybe there is in Staten Island, but certainly in the regular part of New York City, not the regular, the part of New York City most people think of, there are no WalMarts. Right. Mm. There are, uh, they've been kept out, right, by sort of, uh, by a variety of local interest and different, uh, different zoning uh, requirements and stuff like that. I've often thought that if you want to get Walmart in New York City, they should take a, uh, they should take a group of New York City shoppers, fly them down to Florida or, you know, Tennessee or something like that, give them $200 and let them buy groceries. And then give them $200 in New York City and let them buy groceries there and just take a picture of the two piles, mm. right? Things are more expensive in places like that than they need to be, right? So sometimes we have to look and say, are we doing things that are stopping the better outcome from occurring, right? Mm. There are lots of examples where the government is uh, poorly serving, mm. right, individuals through things like regulations. Mm. We talked, you know, in class, a pet peeve of mine is the lottery, right? Mm. The lottery is, is correctly described as a tax, and it's a tax on uh, poor people, and it's a tax on people who don't know math, mm. and it's really a tax on poor people who don't know math. Mm. If some private company was doing to you what the New Jersey lottery organizations and the New York lottery organizations, whatever the bureau is called off the mm. top of my mind, you would go to the attorney general and say, make them stop. Right, yeah, but we do the. Uh, but instead, not only do we not make them stop because the government's getting a cut, 
I show in my classes advertisements, right, about how the government's always almost, almost trying to guilt you into playing, right? One, psychologically, got to be in it to win it, right? Mm. Anything can happen in New Jersey, right? Except you're not getting screwed by the lottery, right? Mm. And then what else do they do? They tell you, oh, right, this is how we help the kids. There's this commercial I show in, 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 uh, in my classes of a New York City, it's a New York City, lot, a New York uh, state lottery commercial. That maybe you've seen it. There's a bunch of people in a bodega, and suddenly the back of the bodega wall opens, and all these really cute little kids come out, and they start singing. Thank you for being a friend or whatever else. And it's like every time you play the lottery, you're putting dollars in the hands of those children. Oh God. And I always joke in class, right? I'm not, I'm, not, I'm not against education. I want kids to read. But we have an established process by which if our schools are underfunded, we should address it. It's called the legislature. Mm. It's called taxes, right? Instead, what we do is we trick a lot of people who maybe should know better. Maybe they even do know better, but they don't act appropriately and get them to really harm themselves, right? I ask every semester of my students, right? All, think about all the people you know who are serious lottery players. And I grew up with them, right? I think I share a little bit of myself here. Again, growing up in a pretty poor area, uh, family didn't have a lot of money. There were people in my family who played the lottery over and over again. And I'm not talking about the big draw, right? You know, it's $50 million, whatever, let me play one ticket. Anybody who, who knows people like this knows who I'm talking about. The people who every single day go, right, $20, $30, $50, twice a day because it's not enough for them to take advantage of you once a day anymore. They have to have the midday drawing and the evening drawing, yeah. right? So, you know, it's kind of funny. Sometimes we talk about, oh, the market isn't serving or the economy isn't serving this group or that group. But then sometimes when you scratch below that surface, you find actually government policies are behind some of those things. Hmm. Well, okay, so... I've worked in a store and I've noticed that as well. That mm -hmm. a lot of people that purchase um, lottery uh, are actually, you know, uh, you can sort of see that, you know, they come from, a lot of them come from homeless backgrounds. Yeah. You know, and yeah, um, that's right. it's, it's depressing. Extremely but, depressing. But see, here's, I think this was the point that, that you know, that kind of troubles me is yeah. the essence of capitalism is actually to help individuals, right? Um, we're, we're, the entire system is supposed to be, you know, uh, built in a way which will, in the end, help us. So just because, so then when these systems like the lottery or unhealthy food, when mm -hmm. these systems exist, isn't that a detriment to society? No, I would, I would disagree with your characterization. It was too paternalistic. The system isn't designed to help us, right? The system is designed to allow us to make our own choices, right? I don't think we should outlaw the lottery. But I think I should try to educate people on why it's a bad idea. Why shouldn't we outlaw the lottery? Why should, why should somebody tell you you're not allowed to spend money on something you want to spend your money on? Under what right or authority should I, have, should I be able to tell you how to live your life? Mm. I'm not affecting somebody else. Well, I mean, uh, but we all agree that the lottery is actually harmful. And the people... Well, I, I guarantee you the lottery are, people don't agree with that. <laughs> <Right>? <laughs> I guarantee you the politicians don't agree with that. I guarantee you my sister, who despite my pleading, still plays it every day, although she's cut down what she plays, she doesn't agree with it, right? Mm. If she did agree with it, right, you have to understand the basis of economics, right, and most market analyses starts on the pillar of rationality. Mm. We assume people are rational. Mm. Now, we talked about, or you mentioned in the beginning, behavioral finance and behavioral economics. In some more advanced, specialized areas, we loosen that assumption a little bit. We always start with the idea that people, right, are going to make the choices that they make based on what they think their benefits and their costs are. Mm. So if, at least where I sit from, there's a very high hurdle, right, to sort of, for me to overrule your choices. Mm. Now, if your choices are affecting me in a negative way, right, in a systematic, well, that's a little bit different, right? Mm. I'm taking advantage. Well, what do you mean by that? 
So for so uh, I think you're going to get to it later. You know, pollution is an example, right? right? Where someone's individual choices could affect the rest of us, mm -hmm. right? And we want to incorporate that into our analysis. But if all I'm doing is right, you know, messing up my own life, right? To be mm -hmm. a little bit crude about it, right? Or not eating broccoli and instead reading, reaching for chicken McNuggets or whatever mm -hmm. else, it's not obvious to me, right? Why government should be involved, right? Mm -hmm. Capitalism isn't supposed to be this top-down system that suddenly makes sure, right, everybody gets exactly what they wanted. Mm -hmm. It's simply a way to organize human behavior where you decide what's relatively more important and less important for you, and what path you go on. And the thing that I think is really interesting, uh, and the reason uh, I always find some, uh, some debates in class uh, a little dated, to be honest with you, is that the, the jury is back, right? There is no argument I would, ar I would argue, and I, I guarantee you could get guests that would disagree with me, and I'm happy to come back and debate them. There is no argument that capitalism is the most successful system for organizing human behavior in the history of the species, mm. right? There has been no other way to organize human endeavors, right, that has gotten us anything like this level of prosperity, right, mm. this level of education, this level of personal safety. Any measure you give me, I will tell you that we're, it's basically this is by far the best time in the history of the planet to be alive. <laughs> Oh, and I'm not suggesting that that doesn't mean we don't have huge problems. Good Lord, we have huge problems, right? And we're going to keep having them, right? Because we're humans and we're mm -hmm. flawed, right? That's the nature of humanity. But I hear sometimes people talk about, oh, the other path not taken. You know, in, um, in history, right, we normally don't have controlled experiments, right? We normally don't have the ability to say, if we did it this way or that way, what were the differences? Uh, normally, we have to be a little more creative. We can't do what we do in science with a catalyst and a control and everything else. But in the era after World War II, we had examples of that, right? We had East Germany versus West Germany. We had North Korea versus South Korea. Two nations that basically start from the exact same point, right? And what happens? They, they then are uh, administered, ruled, whatever verb you want to use, under completely different types of economic systems. Mm. Broadly speaking, capitalism, in the case of South Korea and West Germany, mm. there are details we could argue about, right? You know, how free were the different markets? But broadly speaking, those were free market approaches. And broadly speaking, controlled approaches, in the case of East Germany and North Korea. There is no doubt which one was better, right? I will, I will go to, I will, I will debate forever anyone who suggests otherwise. How are they controlled? What do you mean? Like as you said, that they were controlled economies. Also, I mean, East Germany was a was a communist economy, right? Mm -hmm. Under the model of the Soviet Union and the rest of the Warsaw Pact, right? The market didn't play the role, right? The government decided this is how much steel we're making. Here's who's making it, right? This is what you can buy. This is what you can't buy, and all those sorts of things, right? The reason, Tom, you know, you know, I know people get passionate sometimes the first time they read their Marx. And I read my Marx, right? So <laughs> I read Das Kapital and the Communist Manifesto and everything else. And doesn't it sound lovely? It, the only thing that doesn't work is that it doesn't allow for people, right? Mm. The reason markets work is because we have to, it has to work with people. Mm. If you t it's like a doctor that comes to you or a surgeon comes to you and says, well, the surgery was a success, but the patient died. Mm. Well, then I don't care if the surgery was a success. If you tell me communism will work except for people, well, then that means communism doesn't work, right? <laughs> Same thing. We, the beauty of markets, right, is that it incorporates what, uh, what some scientists refer to as the selfish gene, right? What's the most natural impulse every parent on the planet has, right? To make sure their kids are safe, right, and protected, and hopefully that they could give them a little bit more than their parents gave them mm. in terms of safety, education, right, comforts, whatever it is. That is the most natural impulse of everybody on the planet, right? And it is, at its core, selfish, right? It is at its core, right, looking out for your own, if you will, right? The market incorporates that, 
right? The Smith writes in the uh, Wealth of Nations, right? Use analogies about bakers and stuff like that. And I always ask my students, think about the jobs that you have, right? Do you wake up in the morning and take that job? Uh, let's say you're working at McDonald's or something like that, right? Or hopefully maybe at a hospital. It does make a difference, right? Mm. Did you come into work this morning because you were going to make sure you realize people out there are going to be hungry? And I need to make sure they have a warm Big Mac waiting for them and stuff like that. <laughs> no, you did it because you had to pay your ridiculously overpriced college textbook bill. Mm. Or you had to pay for your tuition. Or you had to pay for your cell phone this month. Yet despite that, right, your customers got value. You know how I know they got value? Because they chose to participate in that transaction. Mm. When I go, you go to a, a doctor's appointment next week and somebody's checking you in in the front and everything else, you were getting a real service from that, right? You were in the process of being delivered health care. But that person is doing it not because they woke up in the morning and said, man, Steve's coming in today. I like Steve. Let me do him a solid, right? I'm going to make sure he gets to see the doctor today. Yeah, sure, there are those acts of altruism every now and then. But for the most part, right, we're looking out for our own self-interest. The beauty of the market is that it channels all of our natural human impulses mm -hmm. into making the whole, right, greater than it otherwise would have been, mm -hmm. right? And there's nothing, if, there's nothing more depressing than looking at, especially in the case of North Korea and South Korea. Hmm. But even back to East Germany and West Germany, right? That country's been reunited for over 25 years now. And, average, and despite hundreds of billions of euros subsidized, subsidies going from the former West to the former East, the former East is still, per capita, significantly poorer than the West is. And it's going to continue probably for the next generation or two, right? Hmm. These decisions, you know, I sometimes say in class, uh, and one of the reasons I'm passionate about this idea that somehow has capitalism failed. For the love of God, no. Study human history, right? Mm. Most of human history is mm. dismal. I mean, sorry to say it, right? Most of human history, right, you were born and you probably lived your entire life pretty near to where you were born, doing whatever it was your father did, right? Marrying someone from that community, praying to the gods they prayed to, hating the people they hated, trying to kill the people they had tried to kill, right? We lived, right, human life expectancy for most of human history went between the early 20s and maybe the late 20s, right, depending on plagues and wars and things like that. What we constitute, what we, um, not constitute, we, what we reflect or maybe describe as the modern world, right, increasing life expectancies, you having choices about what you do, deciding whom you pray to or maybe you don't pray to anybody at all, right, moving, all these other things. These are, you know, to borrow a phrase that's pretty popular right now, these are really modern privilege, right? Mm -hmm. This is really this idea that we're going to hopefully, you know, be healthier than our parents, right, and so forth. This is a modern construct. Mm -hmm. And you know what it coincides with? It coincides with the free market system, mm -hmm. right? If we look at the most abject levels of poverty in the world, right, there's this, there's this old standard called, called a dollar a day. And we adjust it for inflation and everything else like that. But it's what percentage of the population lives on, a, on the equivalent of less than a dollar a day. I think now it's roughly $2 a day, whatever the specific numbers are. If I look back in the early 1970s, over a quarter of the planet lived on less than a dollar a day. And now it's less than 5%, right? Mm. That is extraordinary. Mm. Now, be careful what I'm saying and what I'm not saying. I'm not saying that a dollar a day or $2 a day is some uh, incredibly affluent lifestyle. Mm. For the love of God, it isn't, right? I grew up poor, but I grew up U.S. poor, right? I can't fathom mm. what it's like to try to sort of do something like that. I've traveled to places around the world where I've seen it, but it's not an experience I have any relevant um, uh, perspective on, sort of in that case. I'm also not saying that 5% of the population is okay that it lives below that, right? Nowadays, that's 350 million people, right? By the way, that rate fell by 80% during the same period that the, U that the worldwide population roughly doubled. Mm. 
What I am saying is that you can't take you can't indict capitalism versus some fantasy on a whiteboard, right? You have to indict capitalism uh, or compare and contrast the two other alternatives. Hmm. And if I look at the other alternatives that have ever been tried, the jury is back, right? It isn't even close. And if I and sometimes students will say, well, you just pick those years, right, the past 40 years. So I show them a longer data set. Yeah. We go back 200 years ago. Hmm. A similar measure, right? Over 95% of the population of the planet lived in that level of abject poverty. Yeah. And now it's roughly 5%. That coincides with what we would broadly consider the market system. And it's not a coincidence, it's a cause. Mm. Yeah, I remember um, in your class you did show that um, graph mm -hmm. which sort of uh, shows like the past hundred years and how poverty fell to, the, uh, you know, uh, I think extreme poverty. Yeah, the most like, extreme like, level. Yeah, yeah, you know, in about. in yeah. extreme numbers. Yeah. And, um, and, and it is true. I, when, when I sort of think of it, you know, it, it does seem like we have progressed, you know, from all those years. And it has been sort of ever since the influence of capitalism. But the, the only thing that I think about is when you see all of these, um, because obviously capitalism relies on production and corporations and industrialization. So w when we see like... Um, I would say life uh, relies upon industrialization. Life as we know it. To relies upon uh, production and but, industrialization. But what happened when those things are the reason that your life could be in danger? For example, when we see in um, Beijing and stuff, when it's uh, when people actually don't have clean air mm -hmm. in their environment, mm -hmm. um, or when we see you know people being uh, you know in you know, you know when we see like these these massive bankers or massive institutions mm -hmm. uh, you know being corrupt and mm -hmm. sort of you know go being fraud. So do you think like all these problems are actually individual problems or like um, structural problems? I think they're human problems, right? So for example, there was, I mean, read about ancient Rome or Greece or, or China or you know, whatever historical period you want to look to for inspiration. Mm. Uh, there was corruption, <laughs> you know, obviously. Mm. There were people looking out for themselves, mm. right? There were people who were getting screwed. Right. I mean, so that's that what, part of what you're doing is you're telling me that that humans stink sometimes. And I would wholeheartedly agree mm. um, if I look to, you know, we talk in my microeconomics classes about pollution. Right. Pollution is a great example of both what's perceived as the current failure of the market, if you will. Mm. But the solution is staring us right in the face. Right. Not to, again, not, I don't want to get too technical, but pollution is the classic example of externalities. Right. You and I engage in an economic transaction. I'm producing something, whatever it is. Uh, and someone who's not involved with our transaction is being affected by it. Now, there are positive externalities, right? Sometimes I'm walking through Central Park, and there's a concert being given, right, just over a fence, and some of the music kind of wafts over and everything else, right? And I hear it. I didn't pay for it, right? But I heard some of the music, someone doing a nice, you know, someone on the cello or whatever else. It makes my day a little bit nicer, right? It's always lovely. There's a positive externality. We generally don't worry about those, right? I mean, we, uh, we actually do have to intervene, right? The reason governments should subsidize education to a certain degree is because of the presence of positive externalities in education, but that's a different topic. Usually when we think about market failures in terms of externalities, we think about negative ones, right? Mm. I'm running a plant, I have a smokestack, I'm spilling these things out into the, uh, into the atmosphere, and because of that, you're being harmed and you didn't sign up for this. You're not being compensated for it, it's not fair to you. The solution is standing us right in the face, right? We need to charge people for their externalities, right? We need to make sure we incorporate the true cost of something into the cost people are taking into account. So regulation. It can be regulation, right? And so we've had examples of this, right? We talk about cap and trade, right? And was it, um, 
Oh, which uh, which pollutant? I'm I'm gonna I'm gonna say the wrong one. There was going back, you know, 20 years ago, give or take, uh, starting in the early 90s, right? A process by which they eliminate they were eliminating certain pollutants, and you still see this in parts of Europe. It's it's now been phased out in the U.S. by basically issuing these permits, right? And you might choose to sell these permits, you might issue them. How we distribute them, let's put it aside. And basically, that would cap the amount of pollution in a given industry could have, and then industries could trade them back and forth, right? And if you if you have two companies and one is relatively better or cheaper at reducing pollution, they could sell their excess permits to somebody else who is having more trouble. This program in the U.S. was wildly successful, right? We go over the, we go over the data uh, in my micro class um, in terms of the costs, right, and versus its projections. And of course, because it worked really well, we don't have it anymore. Right? <laughs> it was President, uh, the second President Bush, right, had uh, tried to get Congress to reauthorize it. He didn't. The Obama administration didn't generally favor that type of approach, right? They want a more kind of um, uh, a top-down, right? Mm -hmm. Just pass a rule that says everybody has to get to this level. And it's a less efficient way to do it, right? Mm -hmm. If you understand that scarcity exists and that we have competing goals, and the more money I spend on, let's say, protecting the environment, it means less money I have available for something else, the arts, whatever it is. It is uh, obvious, if you think about it, that you would want to reach whatever your goal is as efficiently as possible. So if I decide I want to cut the, the emissions of filling whatever pollutant it is right by half, I want to get to that point as efficiently as possible, mm. right? Unfortunately, that's a little bit of a tough sell politically, right? Because people are like, wait, you're letting them pollute, right? You're letting them just buy. I imagine, I, I made this joke uh, last week. Imagine you're having a, um, you know, uh, bring your parents to work day at school and everybody tells them about what careers they're in and stuff. And little Stevie's uh, father gets up and, oh, I'm a surgeon, right? And, and Susie's mom gets up. I'm a police officer. Oh, the kids, that's really cool, blah, blah. Right, and poor little Tyler's mom gets up and say, "Hey, I buy and sell pollution credits so that my company can release a certain amount of contaminants into the atmosphere." <laughs> right, and in doing so, I make my company more money. That poor kid's going to be eating lunch by himself for the next for the next two months and everything else. But it's a smart approach. So we know what we have to do. Right, we have to make sure that when you make your decisions, you're incorporating all the relevant costs. Right. Mm. Once we do that, that beauty of equilibrium, that beauty of supply and demand is still good, right? One of the things I always challenge my class with in the very beginning, right? Should we eliminate pollution? And instinctively what happens, right? 90% of the hands go up, some because they believe it, some because they were brainwashed. Well, I raised my hand. Right? Yeah, some that. because they're trying to get a date with somebody else in the class and they think he or she is gonna raise their hand, That's right? Whatever amazing. it is. It's nonsensical when you think about it, right? People don't pollute because they're evil little minions like mm. Mr. Burns from The Simpsons, right? Nobody wakes up in the morning and says, oh, that was uh, sort of some nice uh, fresh air, you know, stretches, stretches out his shoulder <laughs> and everything else. What do I got to do today? You know, it's been a while since I destroyed the environment. Let me go, let me go, let me go burn down a forest, right? That's, that's a juvenile way to look at it. And unfortunately, many of our leaders seem to incorporate that atmosphere. In reality, people pollute because we're getting some benefit along the way, right? Pollution is a side effect of something that we value. If we weren't getting something that we valued, there would be no reason to make pollution, right? There's no like, there's, it's not a sport, right? It's not like, can I, can I get my on-base percentage above a certain level, right? If I pollute X times, right, I'll make the pollutant Hall of Fame. Hmm. So I'm not <laughs> suggesting we don't regulate. Of course we should, right? And we've done a lot, right? Things, I used to live very close. I had an apartment over in Brooklyn and I lived, uh, half mile, not even that, quarter mile from the Gowanus Canal. 
You want me to tell you a story about failures of government and pollution that were over 100 years in the making, right? I could tell you about the Gowanus Canal. But pollution is providing us, right, in a weird way, a service sometimes, mm -hmm. right? It's allowing life that we decided we value to exist. Should we try to minimize it, given our constraints? Absolutely, mm -hmm. right? Should we, if I, if I could tell you I could eliminate a certain, a certain um, uh, pollutant, but it would uh, triple the cost of your food, right? Mm. Or it would uh, mean you can never travel more than 10 miles an hour or something mm. like that. Guess what? You're going to probably say no to that, Absolutely right? Not. And one of the interesting things I find, just to bring it back to trade for a second, one of the, I think, false critiques of a lot of free trade agreements is this idea that, well, other countries have to sort of adopt our environmental standards. Mm. Why are our standards the right ones? Right? Again, it's a trade-off. We're a very wealthy nation. We might decide that X level parts per million. You know, if, by the way, if you look into this, almost never are pollutants just outlawed. Usually there's a level set, right? You can release 100 parts per million of this thing, right? Or 200 parts per million or 500 parts per million. And over time, as our technology has gotten better and we've gotten smarter about it, right? We've reduced those numbers, right? And that's great. We have the capacity to do so. If I'm talking to another nation, right, and their literacy, literacy rates are 30% uh, below ours, or average years in school, most people don't make it past the seventh grade, or fill in the blank, whatever other things in their own social contract they're working on, right, who am I to say that right now, in this point of time, for your development, this is what you got to do, hmm. right? That seems to me, to be honest, awfully, awfully um, uh, arrogant, right? Hmm. Something we're normally ac accused of anyway. It's extremely arrogant when you think about it, right? Now, if they're doing something, let's say you had two countries right next to each other, and one is, you know, one's upriver from the other, and so the first country gets its, takes its clean drinking water out of the river, and then right below its plant throws in all these pollutants that the residents in the next country then have to deal with. Well, that's a different issue, right? There you have at the international level this issue of externalities, right? That has to be dealt with. But most of the time, that's not what we're talking about. Most of the time is we're... We're telling people to make the choices that we want them to make, mm. which again is arrogant, right? It goes to this idea, right? I always, we talk about, in economics, we talk about revealed preferences, right? In some other, in, uh, some other disciplines, I'll ask you what you think is important, right? And I'll do that in economics too. Mm. But then at the end of the day, I'll not just ask you, I'll watch what you actually do. Mm. And you reveal to me what's really important. Mm. And sometimes you didn't even realize what you really cared about. So we mentioned Walmart before. It's a classic example, right? If I did a survey, if we went out to Journal Square right now and we talked about 200 to the first 200 people, and I said to each of them, do you value shopping at local mom and pop stores, right? Do you like it that the owner lives in your community and reinvests, right? And do you want to go to a place where they know your name? And who's going to, I mean, what are we going to get? 98% is going to say yes, 99%. There'll be always be that grumpy guy, right? Probably <laughs> me, right? But almost everybody is going to say yes. And then if I follow up with, would you even be willing to pay a little bit more to support those businesses? I'll lose a couple of cheap people, right? right. But 95% are going to say yes, 96% are going to say yes. And almost all of them are lying. Mm. And I don't mean necessarily lying on purpose. A lot of them are lying to themselves. Mm. And the reason I know it is because I can open up a Walmart in a new community and I can watch what they do. Mm. Nobody makes you go to Walmart if it opens up. Or tar I'm not trying, I don't want to pick on Walmart. Target, right? Whatever, whoever your big box retailer is, right? Nobody makes you shop there. When Walmart first opened up, right, on t up in North Bergen, right, Tunley Avenue and what is it, 91st Street or whatever, the next week, the Hudson County sheriffs didn't send vans up and down Bergen Line Avenue 
pulling people out of bodegas and little little shops and saying, sorry, you got to shop at Walmart now. People chose of their own volition to go there, right? And you might say, well, they shouldn't. Well, you want to know what that, uh, that's a, what, we, what we call a normative argument, right? That's a values-based argument. And maybe based on your values, they shouldn't. So don't shop there, right? Who are you to tell somebody else that they should shop according to your values, mm. right? If so, people are going there, it's because despite what they claimed, they, found, they find something about that transaction more attractive, right? Maybe it's lower prices. Maybe it's better hours. Maybe it's cleaner stores. Maybe it's wide open spaces. Maybe it's the convenience of going to one place. I have no idea. And at a certain level, I don't care why they do it, right? At a certain level, all I care about is that they have the right to do so, hmm. right? That's a fascinating insight. So you're saying that sort of even through pollution, uh, when they do it, it's more to it's 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 it, what we should try to regulate it is through effective means and Absolutely. not to elim eliminate yeah. it. That's that's brilliant. I think that's a, I think that's actually a great way to put it. I want I, I'm not an anarchist, right? I, government exists for a reason, right? I was a double major as undergrad in economics and government, right? Mm. So so I, I've studied government and everything else. I want government to be effective, mm. right? I'm a small government type conservative, right? But it has to be there, right? Mm. And since it's going to be taking my money, right, it's taking, you know, we spend between, I have to look at what the latest numbers are, state and local government in the U.S., what, a third of GDP, right, uh, and federal, right, at all levels of government. It's a big number, that's my point. Let's make sure we're getting our money's worth, right? We could, just because we agree on the goal doesn't mean we should put blinders on in terms of the means, right? Let's make the means as effective as possible. I give, an, I can't remember if I gave it to you in, in our class, but I give this article out uh, about recycling. Right, these two articles. Okay, yeah, I give these two articles out about the history, about the economics behind recycling. One is a very famous article from 20 years ago uh, in the New York Times, uh, and one is an update that the same author did about two years ago. And it talks mainly about the New York City program, and it's fascinating. Um, but the gist of it is, is that the vast majority of recycling programs are a complete waste of time, hmm. right, and a complete waste of money. This idea that somehow people are buying all of our recycled goods from us and we're saving money is almost unmitigated nonsense, right? There are exceptions. People will buy aluminum from you, glass, right, stuff like that. But for the most part, recycling programs cost cities money, okay? Mm. And you might say, God, you're such a, you're a mean jerk, Professor Alvarez, right? <laughs> Why in the world are you being such a stickler? Well, here's the reason, right? If New York City, I don't know what the latest numbers are, but if New York City's recycling program is costing them $100 million a year and they're not getting benefits from it, well, you know what else they could do with that $100 million a year? They could help to help kids in the South Bronx who are suffering from asthma because of pollution, right? Mm -hmm. They could have sped up the cleaning of the Guanas Canal, which is a toxic river of excrement. And both those things were happening in the Guanas Canal. It was incredibly toxic because of pollution and because of poor infrastructure design. Every time it rained too much in New York City, mm -hmm. they threw spew millions of gallons of untreated sewage right into the river. And this was happening as of a few years ago. If you want to be really disgusted and you're listening to this after lunch, uh, <laughs> go on YouTube and uh, Google it and you will see the video from 2010, which I was actually living not that far from there when that bad storm happened. And it will nauseate you, right? So our decisions have consequences, right? This isn't a fantasy land where I get everything, mm. right? You know, you, know, you talk about, the, again, a kid's birthday party. Oh, what do you want to do for your birthday? Well, I want cake. And I want ice cream, and I want a pony, and I want, and I, I don't want to go on the swing set, and I want to go to the circus, right? Well, you know, we got choices mm -hmm. that we have to make. We can only pick certain things. We have to make balances, right? Every time I do, I spend an hour doing this. It's an hour I don't spend doing that. Every time the government takes a hundred million dollars to spend it on this thing, they're not spending the other thing. So if you can tell me that recycling programs make sense, right? The benefits we're getting from them are greater than the costs. Go with God. Terrific. I endorse them wholeheartedly. 
But when you actually dig into the numbers, it's almost never true, hmm. right? And it's a really, it's, it's one of the things I, 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 I try to do in most of my classes now, when we do micro at least, because it's a micro topic. And you, I can't tell you how much it opens people's eyes, right? And then students write about it, they just never thought about it before. We're just indoctrinated, right? That, oh, of course you have to recycle. Why? We're not running out of space, right? This idea, and the article gives us a little bit of history about where this happened into popular culture, right? This idea that somehow we don't have space for landfills and everything else is nonsense, right? I mean, we don't have space in Jersey City, but we also don't have space in Jersey City to raise cattle. Does that mean we shouldn't eat hamburgers, right? Mm. Maybe one of your guests will say we shouldn't eat hamburgers, but I'll leave that for another, leave that for mm. another day. That's interesting. So it's, um, so it's, it's, it's kind of like people uh, ignore the, uh, the, the profits they're receiving from all of these consequences that are the, the bad things that they perceive as being bad. Yeah. The only thing I would say there, I wouldn't say profits because I think that's too limited. I would say mm. benefits. Benefits. Right? Because profits is a really specific right, mm. accounting term, right? right? Economics worries about benefits, mm. right? And sometimes benefits are monetary. Mm. Many times they're not. Mm. One of the misconceptions, goes, goes back to your original question, one of the other really big misconceptions that people have about, uh, about economics sometimes is, oh, you're just about money, mm. right? You're just about making as much as you can. No, we're not, mm. right? We're actually about something that we call utility, right? Broadly speaking, it's the idea of enjoyment or pleasure, right? Ah. Some people, for some people, their utility has a lot to do with money, right? And probably we all know some people like this. They, after school, took the job that paid them the most. They work like crazy. They just keep putting away in the bank. They never enjoy their money, right? Okay. We all also know lots of people, right, whose utility has to do with lots of other things. They find things intellectually challenging, right? They want to give back to the community. They enjoy art, music, family, right? Mm. Think about your own lives, right? Yours or anybody who's listening to this. Think about the choices you've made over the past week. Forget about the past week, the past 24 hours. I guarantee you at some point you made a decision that wasn't about maximizing your own personal balance sheet, right? Your own personal net worth, right? right? And I always tease my class about this. It's like, if you ever doubt this, right? Uh, recall that I used to work at hedge funds. I promise you that if I was spending my every waking hour, right, working uh, at hedge funds still, uh, I would be making more money than teaching economics and finance and the other classes I teach. So clearly I'm maximizing something else, right, than pure dollars, mm. right? And we all do it. Mm. Some of us change that, um, that recipe, if you will, that balance uh, between money and other goals, right? We might weigh things differently. Everybody has to include money at least a little bit. We have to pay our rent, we have to pay our food, right, that type of stuff. And some people, once they get whatever that level is they want, then they can spend the rest of their time on other things, right? And that's fine. That's their choice. I don't have any problem with that. But see, that's uh, that's a little conflicting because I, I feel like um, a lot of the decisions that people make, sort of about which which route to take their life with, it's a lot of the times it's motivated with the idea of profit. Now, for example, I can actually bring a real life example of a friend of mine. Sure. Uh, he wanted to go into film studies. Right. Right. He was really right. interested into the arts. He wanted to, right. you know, direct films and stuff, and he realized that. His since his mom separated, right? He's gonna have to take care of the family now. Mm -hmm. So he decided that you know what? Since I will have the responsibility to provide, right? I shouldn't pursue a film degree okay. because it won't be as profitable as right. it would be for him to pursue a business degree, right? And and that's what he went through. Mm -hmm. Now he had to sacrifice his arts, mm -hmm. right? Now, do you think that that is because of the way society is structured, which is which is uh, which is that? that you can't do much in life if you're not making a lot of money. And the only way for you to sort of, you know, uh, have that 
those essential qualities of life is through money. Do you think that's a structural problem or do you think not, my friend's just an idiot? I, don't, I think neither. Uh, I don't think it's a structural problem. I think it's just the nature of existence, hmm. right? And I don't think your friend's your idiot. It sounds like he weighed the costs and benefits, right? Hmm. For him, taking care of family was very important, hmm. right? And he was worried, right? So, you know, uh, you know, I'm a pretty big guy, right? I'm like 6'1", 6'2", right? Certainly on the north side of 200 pounds. Oh, yeah. I, could, I, could, I could wake up tomorrow morning and say, you know, my passion, my inner calling, my voice inside tells me I should be a professional horse jockey. Mm. Other than scaring the bejesus out of the horse as I approached, <laughs> right? I would fail miserably in that field. The universe doesn't owe me the right to be a horse jockey. Mm. Maybe the universe owes me the right to be able to give it a shot, mm. right? And so the universe didn't owe your friend the right to study film, right? It owed him the, it owed him the right to think about it and think about how likely is it I'm going to do well in that, right? What's my lifestyle going to be like, right? What am I potentially sacrificing to do so? I mean, that's just, I don't mean to belittle the, right. the question. I mean, at a certain level, that's just adulthood, mm. right? You know what I mean? Uh, people who go into medicine, right? They, they, if you go on and do your, uh, your medical degree, and then if you go on and do fellowships and internships and all these other things, right? You know, you might spend 15 years in school becoming a doctor, mm. right? That's a huge investment. That's a huge sacrifice, right? Should they not have to make that sacrifice, right? We all decide what we're willing to do and what not willing to do. So working in hedge funds, for example, it's very, it's, it's lucrative, right? If it goes mm. well and everything else. It's also uh, one of the single most difficult things you can get into, right? And, and uh, high failure rates and all these other things. Not for everybody, right? Mm. You know, I tell a story in class one time about working at this, uh, on this one investment. And an announcement came in. We owned a big piece of this company. An announcement was made that a uh, press release came out that they were being acquired by another firm. Mm. And the market didn't like the announcement, right? And so literally over the next 10 minutes, right, our, our individual investment fell by, I think it was about $11 million, right? And so I watched, right, in 10 minutes, $11 million disappear, right? Now it wound up being a perfectly good investment for us. We made a lot of money on it. So it wound up being a success, but that doesn't feel good. I don't care how much money you made on the investment or everything else. Looking at that happen in real time doesn't feel good. And I happened to have somebody else who I knew who wasn't in finance at all at the time standing uh, behind me when I was on my computer because uh, we were about to go somewhere. And after I sort of finished, uh, I was out of the office. So after I put in a call and said when, how quickly it would take, I get there and everything else, I kind of closed my computer. I turned around and said, oh, sorry about that. You know, something happened at the office. And she looked like she had just seen a ghost, right? She almost had a heart attack. She was like, how do you do that, right? Mm. How do you, can you just remain detached and comfortable, right? That's not for everybody, mm. right? And so that's true for everything, right? Some people, you have to decide, right? Different, you know, how you balance the, the unlimited personal wants that we have. But what right? if someone disregards, like, because of, you know, similar reasons that, you know, my friend might have thought of. But mm -hmm. what if someone like that, this is what troubles me. What if they decide that they want to ditch history? They right. want to ditch their love for philosophy. Right. They want right. to ditch these essential subjects right. that if we don't have them, right. you know, the, right. the world will be a chaos. Right. So th then what? Do you, do you think that with that also they should weigh um, their profits? Let me, let, me, let, me, let me turn it slightly. I, wanna, I want us to think through what the alternative was for your mm. friend, right? And I hope he or she makes whatever choice is good right. for them. And if they change their mind in the future, they should, they should switch. There's nothing about that. Presumably what you're suggesting, if I understand the premise, is that if he had chosen to do film school, he was worried that he wouldn't make as much money as he wanted, right? right? So if you think that shouldn't be a concern, mm. what you're essentially saying is that the rest of us should chip in 
to make sure he can live his dream, right? If mm -hmm. he's not making enough money, there should be some bureau, there should be some agency right. who cuts him a check, right? And says, hey, you thought you were going to make $100,000 a year in your film career, right? Turns out you don't know how to operate a camera, so you made $7,500 a year. Here's the balance. Mm -hmm. And so what I would turn, I would turn around to you and say, by what, uh, by what rationale should I, have to, should I have to, or forget about it, should you have to subsidize his choices? Mm. Why did he get to follow his dream consequence-free? Mm. I don't care if he follows his dream. You want to be an albino poet street performer, right? Terrific. I hope you're a good one, right? But every choice we make has risks, right? Every choice has consequences. Mm. I know people who left very secure jobs and went to work for startups and things like that, right? Obviously very popular in college students, right? Sometimes it works, sometimes it doesn't. There's no guarantee it's gonna work. If you're not willing to face that type of risk, you don't pick that path, right? You pick to go be the junior accountant at KPMG or whatever else, or get a management position at the Marriott Group, right? Or whatever else you choose, right? That's, that's a brilliant insight. So you're saying that sort of the alternative that we have, if mm -hmm. he doesn't pursue it, mm -hmm. right? I mean, if he chooses to pursue it, then that's a lot more catastrophic than, you know, him going to sort of pursuing, yeah, you know, pursuing what, money. What I'm suggesting is if I was going to paraphrase what you seem to be suggesting, you want everybody to get life insurance. Mm. And I don't mean life insurance like if you die. Mm. I mean life insurance that pick your path, right. but if it doesn't work out You'll the way you want it, don't worry about it, right? Yeah. We got you covered. Yeah. At a certain level, I think that's true, right? The idea of a social safety net and everything else. Right. I would certainly not uh, endorse, right, people starving in the streets and everything else, right? I agree with that. But I don't think you have an automatic right to the light that you think you're entitled to, if you know what I mean. Right. And you know, it's kind of funny, you know, because through some hard work and a ton and ton of luck and scholarships and things like that, you know, I have from pretty humble beginnings as a kid who grew up in Jersey City, found myself in boardrooms and around the world, right? And he's sort of with people who, you know, frankly came from money, if you will, mm -hmm. right? Came from it. And you know, what's always interesting, um, uh, if they don't know my background, they would never expect it. But I, I've noticed in myself, I carry into those meetings sometimes a, just a little bit of a chip on my shoulder, which I have to be careful of, right? Because I have, I come to the table with a little bit like, hey, I'm not supposed to be here, right? I kind of weaseled my way, right, right. into uh, into your club, if you will, right. and stuff like that. Uh, but that wasn't guaranteed, right? Mm -hmm. When I went to work at Wall Street or made different choices in my life. And by the way, I've made lots of choices that didn't work out, right? We all do, right? Mm -hmm. This question, what do you do next, right? Mm -hmm. I've been involved with a startup that failed, right? And uh, uh, you know, uh, all of us, if you went back, could we pick four or five decisions that mm -hmm. we make differently? Mm -hmm. Of course we would, of course we would. We're not looking, uh, one of my favorite phrases is never make the perfect the enemy of the good, right? You try to do the best you can, and when you fail and you will, mm -hmm. You keep trying, mm. right? You know, you don't hold your the perfectionist, and sometimes you know, I'm a I'm a bad combination of perfectionist and a procrastinator, which is just lethal. But sometimes <laughs> you always put off doing things because oh, I have to get it just right, I have to get it just right, mm. and you can spend your whole life waiting to get it just right. Sometimes right. you just got to roll the dice a little mm. bit, right? But if you choose to roll the dice, it's not my responsibility to uh, mm. make sure you don't face any consequences. Mm. That, that's fascinating, and it, it it does sound like the. I feel like a lot of people can't really see it that that clearly, because all they see is just someone sort of letting go of their dreams. Yeah. you know, and and that sort of distracts them. Like Nobody so. wants to let go of their dreams, yeah. right? I mean, there were when I started college as a history theater double major, mm. right? Now the history morphed into uh, government and economics, which is mm. what my actual undergraduate degree was in. Mm. My graduate degree is in finance. Um, the theater, I did about half the major. And I remember I took, I had some family issues going on back home. So I took a year off from school and I went back to uh, campus. 
And I decided not to do the theater major anymore. And I remember I was describing it to a friend of mine, right? I was like, I realize I don't have enough angst, right? All these other people were these dark, brooding personalities, mm -hmm. contemplating the human condition, <laughs> right? And woe is us. By the way, they all came from the school I went to from these very fortunate backgrounds and everything else. And it was ironic that, like, they had the angst that I seemed to lack, right? Mm. But, you know, should I have been sort of, should I have stuck with theater because I thought about it for a little while and stuff? Right. No, I decided. I could have, right? I was doing, I thought I was pretty decent at doing set design work and stuff like that and things like that. I made a decision, right? I was going to go, I didn't know I was going to be going to finance at that point, right? And then eventually academia. But I was really interested in politics, right? I was doing working on campaigns and stuff and volunteering. I said, hey, I got to do another path, Right. You know, I, I remember having a discussion with some friends over the years saying, wouldn't it be great if you had 10 lifetimes, right? Mm. Meaning that, hey, we all think of different visions of ourselves, right? You're the, you, can vision, you can think of the time that you decided to go to med school, right? And you were a doctor or you worked in the arts or you, um, you know, opened up a small business or you moved to an island off the coast of Greece and wrote, wrote poetry, right? We all got to choose eventually, right? And it's one of the, and I'm still, listen, I, I, to this day, have a little bit of a foot in two different worlds, right? Mm. For, you know, the finance and business world and academia. So maybe I'm not a good poster child for mm. making choices and sticking to them. But all of us eventually have to cut off some paths, right? right. The old adage about, you know, by not making a decision, you make a decision, right? There's no way for me to allow people not to have to make decisions, right? right? What influenced you to cut off some paths and sort of go the path that you took? Mm. I mean, I guess it depends on different points in time, right? Mm. Sometimes it's haphazard. Mm. Sometimes it isn't. Uh, sometimes it's luck, right? Mm. You know, I always, you know, I'll always talk about luck, but, you know, one thing I try to encourage students to think about is that not that you make your own luck, but you can make yourself available to take advantage of it. Mm. And, I, you know, the analogy I use in class is always like soccer or hockey, right, depending on what your sport of choice is. The vast majority of shots don't go in. Mm. And as you're swinging the puck or kicking, whatever, you don't know if that one's going to go in. But you know if you take enough shots, right, some of them are going to go in, mm. right? I don't know ahead of time, mm. right? I do know after time, afterwards and everything else. And so some of my life has just been sort of taking those shots, right, and mm. seeing kind of where they fall. Um, like I said, I, I decided to stop doing the theater. theater I knew I wasn't going to make, unlike your friend, I never had any misconceptions that I was going to sort of have a career in, in theater, right? right? I thought about being a writer early on when I was, when I was in high school and stuff like that. Oh, that's interesting. Um, but I never thought, thought I was going to you know, get my TV gig or whatever else. Mm. So for me, in that particular case, right, when I went back to school after, after a year off, um, I was, I, I had an, I remember having a sort of just a little bit of an honest conversation with myself. Mm. I was like, is it really, I've, you know, I, I could still do a show here and there if I wanted to. And I did one or two more designs. But is this really, am I passionate enough about this to devote the time to this rather than the time to something else, mm. right? And the answer to that was no, right? I've turned down job opportunities, as a lot of, lots of people have, that, you know, in an individual moment might have made you more money, but it doesn't fit with where you see yourself going. Mm. And so I think another good analogy when you kind of plan your careers and things like that, and I talk to students about it as well, is sailing, right? Mm. Very rarely is the wind blowing exactly where you want to go, right? So what you want to do is you have to tack. You swing that sail back and forth, and you're moving in the general direction. Sometimes it lines up. Sometimes you get the perfect job at the perfect moment, mm. and knock on wood, take it. Fantastic, right? Mm. Don't look the gift horse in the mouth. On the other hand, sometimes you don't, and usually you don't. But am I moving in the right direction, right? 
And so it's something I still struggle with, right? I was just having a conversation the other day about uh, right now, almost all of my time is academic, mm -hmm. right? Uh, professor at another school, and I, and I adjunct here at, at Hudson. Uh, will that be true five years from now? I don't know, right? Maybe or maybe not, mm -hmm. right? Maybe I'll kind of keep dabbling back and forth and stuff like that. So you're just strolling through your preferences. I guess, I guess I'm strolling through my, oh my God. <laughs> How's that sounds? That sounds how uh, lackadaisical and entitled and everything else. <laughs> I wander the corridors of life seeing what you've laid before me. No, it's not I kind of wanted quite. to end it in poetically. Yeah, uh, not, not too bad, not too bad. <laughs> All right, so we'll end the podcast right here. Next semester, Professor Alvarez will be teaching honors macroeconomics and regular sections of microeconomics. Thank you so much for being here, Professor. Your Thank insights you. were fascinating. Kind well, this of blew this, my mind a bit. Wow, this is a pleasure. Yeah. I, I look forward to hearing uh, hearing your future guests. And let me know if you ever want me to come back, if I'm aboard everybody all the time. All right. Thank you.